This morning we continue uh, our series on the fruit of the Spirit. And throughout the weeks we've talked about different fruits, uh, really it's just one fruit, but different elements of the fruit. And so this morning we want to unpack what it means to have the fruit of the Spirit, and particularly this element of faithfulness. Like, What does it mean to understand faithfulness in context of what God has to say? Uh, so this morning we will be in Genesis 15, uh, verse 1 through 6, and here is what the word of the Lord says. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, which we know as Abraham, who God changes his name. Uh, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring. And so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to them, So shall your descendants be, essentially as many as the stars. And so Abraham, Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you that you are faithful to us. And may, out of that faithfulness to us, compel us to be faithful to you. May we find you trustworthy. May we find you as true and know that what you have to say, the promises you make, as hard as they are to believe, and, and oftentimes, many times, we don't feel your promises come into fruition, may we believe that you are in control and you are always up to something. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Now, as we continue this series on the fruit of the Spirit, and, and we unpack this idea of the word faithfulness, what we all understand throughout the, the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, is that faithfulness is often described as the word trust. And so throughout the entire Bible, the word faithfulness and trust is used interchangeably. And I know that when I even say the word trust, it can, it can sometimes be triggering because uh, the reality is many of us, we've experienced trust that has been broken. Whether that's broken due to what we've done and in our sins and in the way that we've hurt others or someone breaking their trust to us. I've had to walk along folks who've experienced infidelity in their marriages, betrayed by their own family members, dishonesty within friendships. I've seen and I've been part of it all. And so the word trust can be very difficult to, to hear and to even talk about. And to make matters worse, especially if you're here and you're watching, we're so glad that you joined us online uh, for those of us that identify as being followers of Jesus, uh, to make matters worse, this idea of distrust oftentimes seeps into our faith. That oftentimes, in, in different seasons of our lives, uh, we have this impression, we believe that uh, 
that the promises of God to us, to our lives, the things that God has told us, whether it's through the Spirit, whether it's through Scripture, or whether it's through others, that oftentimes it is hard to believe. So many times we feel like God just oftentimes doesn't hear us or has let us down. Whether it's a life-altering diagnosis in our lives, whether it's a deep sense of loss, maybe it's a pandemic with so many uncertainties and so many challenges. Maybe it's life throwing us an ugly and unexpected and painful curveball. Regardless of what it is, there's so many times where we have experienced ourselves, especially as followers of Jesus, asking the question, God, where are you? God, have you been faithful? Can I essentially trust you? Are you faithful? And if I could be completely transparent with you, over the last year and a half is has probably been the hardest season of my last, in my life as far as it goes regarding my calling as a pastor. Now, I've been a pastor for about 15 years, and, I, and really only 15 years because I've met and been around so many seasoned pastors that have been doing this for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And I would say in our conversations, uh, the, the thing that we have in common is that many of us would agree that the last year and a half, uh, as it pertains to uh, our ministry as a pastor, it's been the hardest year and a half of our lives. And for many of us, including myself, it's this idea of reconciled, reconciling this idea, yes, I truly believe I'm called to be a pastor, I'm called to be here, and many of the pastors that I work with and our friends with feel the same thing, and yet it's hard to reconcile why this has been so hard. I mean, it's challenging for, for obvious reasons and for many different reasons, uh, but it's this idea of reconciling our calling with trusting. God, if you've called us into what we're doing, where are you? And yes, pastors can ask that. I, I, I ask that often. God, where are you? God, I feel like you, you've kind of left me here to dry. And again, I know that this feeling isn't new and isn't unique to just me and, and my job and my, and my colleagues or so forth. Wherever we are in our lives, we've asked that before. God, where are you? God, are you faithful? God, I thought, even this, God, I thought I heard you. Uh, tell me to do this or to do that or wh- whatever that might be. And, and ultimately, you get there and you say, God, did, are, are you, did you leave me here to dry? And, and it's a common story, not just in our lives, but all throughout the scriptures, even the Old Testament, when God rescues the Israelites, God's chosen people uh, from slavery in Egypt into this promised land. And in their journey... Many of them complained to God, to to their leader Moses, saying, God, we felt like you were calling us to a better life, to do something different, and yet it feels like you've abandoned us. God, are you faithful? Are you trustworthy? And in the Old Testament, the so first of all, the Old Testament is written originally in Hebrew, and so, so it's important for us to understand some of the words that are used. And and in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for faithfulness is emet. It's this word emet. 
And in Exodus, there's a story that describes how the ancient Jews thought of this word of faithfulness, really the word emet. There's a story in, in Exodus chapter 17. I'll, I'll quickly read this to you. It's not what today is about, but I just want you to have an idea of how they understood the word faithfulness. And it, and it goes like this. As long as Moses held up his hands, so, so, so the Israelites, they were battling the Amalekites. Okay, So that's all we need to know for now. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the, uh, the Amalekites were winning. So, so you can imagine that there's a battle, and Moses is our leader, and really it's, it's this staff, this, this staff that God gave Moses, and he was to raise it up during battle. And the idea was as long as this staff was raised up, then the, the Israelites would be winning this battle. <clears throat> and you can imagine how tiring that could be because uh, hour after hour and really day after day, the calling was for Moses to keep that staff raised. And every time he was tired or fatigued and he would bring it down, then the tables would turn and he would have to bring it back up. So that's what we're talking about here. When Moses... Uh, Moses' hand grew tired. Uh, they took a stone. So the Amalekites, so then when Moses' hands grew tired, his friends, okay, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and her, so another guy, came around and held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites' army with the sword. And so I love this image. It's this image of Moses holding up his staff and yet getting weary, but knowing that he has to hold on. And so his friends came on both sides of him, held each arm, and held this, his arm up in order for Moses to be able to hold that staff up. And it says that when they did this, Moses' arms were steady. And the word steady that's used is the word Emet, which we would translate as faithfulness, which we would translate as trust. It's this idea that when we talk about faithfulness, especially the faithfulness of God, that God is steady. And that with God, even in our weariness, in our confusion, in our exhaustion, that God's promises comes true and holds our arms, our bodies, our minds, our emotions up and protects them and carries them and holds them and is steady. It's this idea that God is constant. And because God is constant and steady, we can trust everything that God has to say to us. <clears throat> but yet, has God felt unsteady in your life? Has it felt like God has been allowing your arms to drop and perhaps feel defeated? Has it been hard, especially in the last year and a half, or even years before, or maybe you're going through something right now, whatever it is, maybe you're going through that something right now. It's hard to trust. And if you've ever felt that, and if you're feeling that now, you know exactly what Abraham and Sarah was feeling in this morning's text. 
Abraham and Sarah, the father, they're known as the father and mother of our faith. God promises Abraham and Sarah that they will have a child. And out of that child, there will be many descendants. And that will be a great nation. Now the problem is that Sarah, at the time Sarah, and Abraham, at the time his name was Abram before God changed their names, they were uh, in uh, high in age, or upper in age, they were in their 90s. And up to this point, I would assume that they've been trying to have children, but they, but they for some reason, have not been able to do that. And yet here God is having the audacity to promise Abram and Sarah, guess what? You're going to have a child, and out of that child will be a great nation. It was almost laughable. It was unbelievable. And so then in Genesis chapter 15, uh, you know, God constantly is telling them, do not be afraid. I will be with you. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be great. And I love Abraham's response. He says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue to be childless? Basically saying, how am I supposed to trust you? Look at my life and look where I am. Look what I have not been able to accomplish up to this point, even though you say that I will be. And this whole idea of this lineage is important, not only because because of the importance of lineage and family. Carrying on a family name is extremely important. And oftentimes if a family doesn't have offspring or children, then they hire a slave or a servant, and that servant ends up taking on the lineage because it's that important to carry on essentially the the family name. And so Abraham, it seems like at some moment he he trusts. And then we find that Abraham and Sarah both get desperate They desperately want to trust God, but they also desperately know their situation. They know their age. They know that it hasn't happened thus far. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds unbelievable. And so in Genesis chapter 16, the very next chapter, listen to this. Now Sarai, again, this is Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So after God promises Abram and Sarah, hey, you're going to have a child. I promise you. And even through that, all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, the Torah, God is considered faithful and trustworthy. And even so, they, they doubt, like, how can this be? Look at my life circumstance. Look, look at the things that have been happened, that has happened to me, where this doesn't seem very possible at all. And so they start to take matters in their own hand. Sarah says, you know what? We can't trust God. It's not going to happen. And so here's what I'm going to do. Out of my own desperation, instead of just trusting God, instead of surrendering, instead of sitting here in the unknown, just uh, putting away their own intellect, just trusting in God, they say, you know what? We have to do something about it. And so they find their servant, Hagar, to have children. And this is with, with Abraham. 
And, and this is the very next chapter after God's promises. So it didn't take very long for the faith to go down. And, and it's interesting that when, when Sarah devises this plan, he says, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. I, I wish the very next verse said something like, uh, well, Moses struggled with this idea and, and had to think about it for a really long time, had to begrudgingly agree, uh, but it didn't. The very next verse after Sarah's you know, plan, Abraham, the, the Bible says, then Abraham agreed. Like, wow, that, that was fast. Like, not even pretending you didn't want to do this or not even pretending you had, you know, a different thought or, or this was a bad idea. Immediately when Sarah gave this idea for Abraham to, uh, you know, sleep with Hagar, he was like, okay, I'll do it. And so after Abram, it says, it says this, so after Abram agreed, after Abram agreed to what Sarah said, uh, and they lived in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, uh, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Notice that it didn't take long for God to make a promise to God to call himself faithful, that God's saying, I will come through for you. And immediately Abraham's, I, I believe, I believe. And yet, just the very next chapter, they start to panic. Because the way that they had planned, that the way that envisioned was just not happening. And so out of desperation, they create their own plan that involved Hagar. And that created some drama afterwards. But look at the language. Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. That's what Sarah believes. Even though God said to Moses, you are going to have children, and, it's going, and they're going to have children, and they're going to have children, and there will be many descendants, and there will be a great nation, even after that promise, just because it wasn't happening in their own time frame, Sarah says the word, Sarah at the time says the words, the Lord has kept me from having children. She blames God immediately. Immediately. And, we, and she falls into this trap that we often fall into in our own lives, out of our own panic, because God isn't coming through, because life isn't panning out the way that we decided it should pan out. We start to panic, and we start to take over, just like Abraham and Sarah. God's not going to do it? Okay, well, I'll figure something out. We live in an age, in a time in society, where we believe that uh, these old adages, these old sayings saying, if you want something done right, then you must do it yourself, right? We, we've all heard this old adage before. If we want something done right, we got to do it ourselves. All we have to do is, uh, you know, put up our bootstraps and, and then just work hard and we'll get it done and it'll be done and it'll all be good. We, and all these things are good. Of course, they're good. But the lesson here, what we're seeing, is that they're doing it out of distrust of God's promises, out of their own panic. They want to take over. And how often have we felt this, even with God? How often do we do this? We feel like God will not deliver. 
that God is taking too long, that God is silent, that God is not providing. And again, as a result, we feel like we can do it better. If you want to get it done right, you got to do it yourself. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And so what do we do? We begin chasing money because we feel like that's going to solve all of our problems. We chase upward mobility because we believe status will change our lives. We settle for unhealthy and even toxic relationships. We cut corners. We make unethical decisions. We fall into addiction, workaholism. Because we have a hard time waiting for God to come through. And for whatever reason, we feel like waiting equals non-existence. We feel like waiting equals it's not going to happen. When waiting really equals surrendering and trusting and, and knowing that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy. You know, I was reading about some experiment that they used to do, a, a fun experiment where they would bring children, uh, individual children in the room, and they would call it the marshmallow test. And, you know, when, they, when the therapist or sociologist goes into the room, goes up to the child and says, Here, here's one marshmallow. I'm going to put it on the table. Now, if you can wait uh, to eat this marshmallow, you don't know, I don't, you don't know when I'm going to be back. You know, I'm not going to give you a time. I don't know uh, when. There's no other stipulations. The, the only stipulation is this. If you eat it now, great, you'll enjoy it. But you're not going to get a second one. But if you wait until I come back and it's still intact, you didn't touch it, you didn't eat it, then you will get a second one. And now you'll have two marshmallows. And it's really funny. You should look it up. Uh, there's a variety of different children doing different things. You know, there's some kids that are just, you know, because there's a video and they're by themselves and their mouth is watering and they're just so tempted to take it, just to take it because they want it. It's right there. It's right, it's right in front of them. Why wouldn't they do it? And there's some kids that will take a bite out of it as if the adult won't notice or they'll just eat the edges and it's like gooey, it's disgusting and it's sitting there. And I don't know what they're thinking as if like, hey, I didn't touch it. And there's some that just completely ate it, and there's some that absolutely left it. And for those children that left it, they were able to enjoy twofolds, double the amount of marshmallows. And now I look at the story, and oftentimes when I feel like we believe that God is not trustworthy, when it feels like we're so broken and we're just in need of God, and we feel like God's not showing up, when we take matters into our own hands by to, to try and create a, our own worthiness or fulfillment or our own joy. It, it often feels like that child that, that couldn't wait and that takes that one marshmallow when the reality is God has something for you. And all it requires, and I say all oh, as if it's easy, it's not easy, is for us to trust is for us to surrender. It's for us to allow God to be God and us to be God's children. And then we get to the New Testament, and I love this connection. In Matthew chapter 1, now, 
if you're ever bored, I would love for you to read all of Matthew chapter 1. And if you don't know what it is, it's verses and verses and verses of the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, so we won't, th- um, we won't do that today, but if you're ever interested, you should read it. But I will read this, just one verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. It, it kind of sums up the entire genealogy of Jesus. And it says this, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exiles to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah, to Jesus. Now, it's easy for us to gloss over Matthew chapter 1, but I want us to to understand the point of why Matthew is writing this genealogy. In fact, it's actually very brilliant. It's describing how faithful and how trustworthy God is. And that the very promise in Genesis, the beginning of the Old Testament, where God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to, you're going to have a child. And yes, we see that there's Isaac and Isaac has children. And yes, we, we see that God's promises have come true. But not only has God's promises come, come true to Abraham by having Isaac, it doesn't just stop there. There's generations and generations and generations culminating with Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the, uh, of the promise that God made in Genesis to Abraham. It was something bigger and better than what they expected. They just wanted a child. They got a child named Isaac. But what they wouldn't know and that they didn't understand, of course they didn't know the future, they didn't see, is that generations after generations after generations in the same family tree in the lineage was none other than the Messiah Jesus. God's promises came true. God is trustworthy. God is faithful. And I know many of us this morning, and and maybe I'm just projecting, but many of us, we feel now or have felt defeated. We felt broken. We felt hopeless. We felt like as if God is not faithful, as if God is not trustworthy. And the scripture points out that the story is not always what we think it is. The story doesn't end just in Genesis. God's promises has been seen all throughout the scriptures and ultimately at Jesus. And so the testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the embodiment of God's faithfulness that God promised all the way from the beginning of time. And so my encouragement, my hope for all of us sitting here, including myself, is this, that A, we will trust in God's timing. We'll trust in God's timing, that God's timing isn't always our timing. The way that God moves and the way that God works isn't the way that we want God to move. But remember, we have to allow God to be God and for us to be God's children. 
You know, I tell this story oftentimes when we talk about the, the exodus. You know, it says it took 40 years for the, the Israelites to escape slavery in Egypt. And, and, and all throughout, they took detours. They got lost. They complained to God. They're like, God, why did you bring me here? God, where are you? God, are you trustworthy? God, are you faithful? And oftentimes, they concluded, no, God is not. And 40 years later, they finally crossed over to Canaan, the promised land, the, the land that God has promised them all the way from the beginning. And the ironic part of this is that if they were just to have done a straight shot from, from Egypt to Canaan, instead of taking all these detours, going down on the southern end of the peninsula of Sinai, uh, that took 40 years, it would have taken them a two, week, two weeks. Two weeks, that's it. It would have just taken them a walking distance of two weeks, a straight shot from point A to point B. But what they didn't know at the time, and maybe they died unknowing, and the reality is this, that many scholars and theologians agree that had they have gone, taken the straight shot, they would have been wiped out because of that main road where there were many military Egyptian outposts. They would have been demolished. They would have been wiped out. And who knows what would have happened to the Israelite people. Therefore, who, would have, who knows what would have happened to the Christian faith had they gone that two-week, easy, straight-shot route. And I believe right now, many of us, when I say we have to trust God's timing, many of us, we're in this detour without knowing why. And sometimes not knowing how the story unfolds, not knowing the, uh, how things will come into fruition is very painful. We are a people that are conditioned not to be good at waiting. We're terrible at waiting. We're terrible at sitting with the unknown. Again, you know, one of my favorite authors, you know, her name is Brene Brown. She talks about this all the time, about oftentimes we panic and we go through so much anxiety when we don't know the end of the story of our own lives, how things will unfold. And we hate not knowing how things will unfold so much that we create an awful ending because an awful ending, even though imaginary, is better than not knowing an ending at all. And, and she calls it, in therapists, they call it catastrophizing. Have you ever catastrophized something? Like you don't know what the ending holds, but automatically you assume... Here's what's going to happen. Oh, my gosh. You know, you know this person is going to hate me, and, and I'm going to lose my job, or I'm gonna, and I'm going to you know, lose my house, and, and all these things. And maybe sometimes that's true, but oftentimes it's because we can't sit with the unknown. You know, I remember, you know, when I was, you know, doing a workout not too long ago, I hurt my wrist. And I remember immediately when, when I hurt my wrist, my mind went to really weird places. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to have to go to the doctors and they're going to have to, you know, do surgery and then I'm not going to be able to use my hand for who knows, many months, maybe years or maybe ever and I'm not going to be able to do this, I'm not going to be able to do that. I love ice cream, I can't eat ice cream. Like, all these things are going to be so challenging and yet I went to the doctors and they said, just put an ice pack on, you'll be fine. 
because our minds, we start to catastrophize because we have a hard time trusting in God's timing like the Israelites. Number two, we got to learn how to surrender. Being okay with not knowing. Trusting that God has the best for us. Not just happiness, not just good news, not just, you know, all the, all the great things and not just happy feelings because we all know that's not true. That doesn't always happen. But at the end of the day, that when God writes our stories, and I love saying this, and I love believing this about myself, is that when God writes our stories, oftentimes we believe God puts a period at the end. Whatever bad news that you heard, whatever terrible experiences that you've had, we believe that God puts a period at the end. That's the end of your story when oftentimes it's not a period, it's a comma. God uses a comma saying, I'm not done. Your story is not done yet. There's something so much bigger and greater waiting for you. Just stay in the game. We must surrender our control, our need for power. And lastly, as God is faithful to us, God asks us to be faithful to God and others. And that's the covenant that God longs for us to be in, to trust God, to know that God is faithful, and for us to be obedient, to listen, to pray, to be guided by the Spirit. And when we do that, we can walk up to any trial, any discouragement, any heartache, any pain, right up to its face, knowing that God will come through. Yes, oftentimes life will throw curveballs, and we will feel pain. We will experience tragedy. We will know loss. And yet, at the end of the day, we can celebrate because God is with us. And when God is with us, nobody and nothing can be against us. Just yesterday, I uh, officiated a wedding, my, my first wedding in, in a year and a half. And uh, it, was, it was quite strange being around so many people for the first time. Uh, and, and in this wedding, uh, they did their own vows. And as this, you know, young man and young woman, they were exchanging their vows together. It was, it was, so, it was so beautiful. Because oftentimes, I'll, I'll do their vows for them. They repeat after me. And, and they do that, and it's great. And yet... This time they decided to write their own vows. And the underlining uh, content of the vows is that they would be so committed to one another. That they would be faithful to each other. That they can trust one another. And it's that kind of illustration that even in the New Testament talks about. When we are in relationship with God, it's as significant, it's as intimate, it's as deep as it is when two people get married to one another. God is faithful. May we believe in that. May we trust in that. That God is with you. Do not be afraid. And so as I invite the, the worship team back up. I just want to take a moment for us to just reflect. To take a moment. Maybe right now, are you experiencing a sense of distrust? Are you asking, God, are you, are you faithful? In other words, God, can I 
can I trust you right now? Maybe you're, you're in the midst of trying to make a decision, a big decision. Maybe you're experiencing discouragement. Maybe you're just overwhelmed with the anxiety of not knowing what's going to happen, especially with this pandemic when there's new things and new information happening all the time. God, what am I supposed to do? God, where are you? Why is this happening? If that's you, I, I encourage you. This moment to enter into a time of prayer. Maybe it's a sense of silence. Maybe you just want to close your eyes and say, God, help my unbelief. This was a prayer in the New Testament. God, help my unbelief. God, help me to just trust in your timing. God, help me to surrender. God, help me to just be faithful, to be steadfast to you. Because I know that you are working whether I see it or not. The message I end with is so simple. God is with you. God loves you. God is with you. And the promises that God makes all throughout the scriptures is a promise to you and me. That God will be faithful. Just hang in there. Let's pray. God, thank you. That we can trust you in our lives, even when trust is so hard. Even when there's evidence to say and to believe not to trust you, to do it on our own, out of our own desperation, out of our own panic and anxiety, out of our own need for control, that we take it upon ourselves to create our own fulfillment, knowing that that just doesn't last. So God, we thank you that you promise us life not just any life, but everlasting life and a thriving life. And we see that embodied in the person of Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection tells me it's true that you are trustworthy. We thank you for the sacrifice you made on the cross on our behalf. That is faithfulness. And that is why we believe you when you say you love us, you'll never abandon us, and you want the absolute best for us. And so no matter what we're going through right now, help us to put the comma at the end of that, not a period, because that is the way you work. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's continue in worship.